My name is Loretta Howard. I'm currently serving as the vice president of the 4th U Board, and I've been a member here for seven years. I'm also an art historian and a curator. Today, we officially unveil 4th U's third annual art installations with works by renowned artists Robert Rauschenberg and Carl Fudge. Installed above the altar and in the chapel, the artwork seeks to align the values of our congregation more closely with this spiritual space. Art plays a vital role in society and by extension, it raises issues we are concerned with here at 4th U. Artists like Unitarians have always been activists. They're often the first community to speak out on behalf of human rights and social justice. Robert Rauschenberg has long been a master at employing art to raise awareness. I am pleased to introduce Julia Blout, the Senior Curator for Research and Curatorial Affairs at the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. We are most grateful to Julia and the Rauschenberg Foundation for allowing us to use this important work. Julia will tell us more about Rauschenberg's deep commitment to the environment. And by the way, today, October 22nd, would have been Rauschenberg's 98th birthday. We'll be celebrating with him with a birthday cake at coffee hour. And after Julia's remark, Carl Fudge will speak about his art installation from Durer's resurrection in the chapel. Carl is a working artist represented by the Ronald Feldman Gallery and a professor and program director of the MFA Studio Art Program at City College of New York. Julia. Hello. Um, thank you, Loretta. And thank you, Reverend Jennifer, and all of you at the Fourth Universalist Society for inviting me here today. It's an amazing way to start a Sunday morning. It is such a pleasure for me to see Rauschenberg's last turn, your turn, projected at this scale above your altar. Your request for Rauschenberg to provide art for an altarpiece was in 1999, when the Vatican commissioned a last judgment for the Padre Pio Pilgrimage Church in Puglia, Italy. Upon seeing Rauschenberg's maquette for the altarpiece, the Catholic Church rejected the commission, deeming it inappropriate as Rauschenberg chose to depict God as a satellite dish. At the time, Rauschenberg turned the other cheek and said, quote, my art is based on hope and aims to inspire spirituality and life. And I would say the same can be said of this temporary altarpiece. It is a detail from a 1991 lithograph that was printed in an edition of 200, was later produced as a poster, and as a billboard that was displayed on public buses in cities throughout the US. Rauschenberg's purpose was to raise money and awareness for the Earth Pledge, which had launched in 1991 at the United Nations Conference on the Environment and Development. The pledge was described as, quote, an urgent call to action to save the planet Earth. The title, Last Turn, Your Turn, most certainly suggests that each individual person is responsible for protecting the Earth. It tells you it's your turn, and it might also be the last turn you get. 
A sense of emergency is communicated by the artist through brilliant, dissonant primary and secondary colors and through symbolic imagery, which refers to various threats to the survival of life on Earth. He represents, at the top, the destruction of the rainforests. At the bottom center, an infant is shielded by a red umbrella, partially protected from the de deteriorating ozone layer. And in the lower right, the figure of Atlas supports the weight of the world on his shoulders. Above these, and these aren't included in the detail, but you can see it um, in the replica of the full lithograph over here, um, is inscribed in the artist's handwriting, the words from the Earth Pledge, I pledge to make the Earth a secure and hospitable home for present and future generations. So what made Rauschenberg an environmentalist? Robert Rauschenberg was born on October 22, 1925, in Port Arthur, an oil refinery town on the Gulf Coast of Texas. It was a town with lots of pollution and little to nurture the interests of a person who would become one of the leading American artists of the second half of the 20th century. By mid-century, Rauschenberg had declared his expansive artistic philosophy, famously saying, my painting relates to both art and life. Throughout his career, he would use his platform as an artist to increase knowledge about social and global issues. In conversation with the musician David Byrne, he said, quote, artists have a responsibility to represent positions that might go unnoticed with our, our commitment, end quote. His dedication to preserving the environment came into focus in 1970 when he moved his studio from New York to Captiva Island off the Gulf Coast of Florida. He was just determined throughout his life to maintain the natural environment of this barrier island and to protect its natural habitat. It was also in 1970 that Rauschenberg designed the poster for the first Earth Day. To pr promote the Earth Pledge, Rauschenberg attended the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. And I'll wrap up by reading you the statement he delivered at the summit. Quote, the inhabitants of the world are exhausting its resources and through ignorance and misuse insisting on its non-existence. Now is the only time we have. We need all of the existing living things to attempt with devout attention and dedication to if not reverse this certain death, to turn it back into life. What power people without reason read as development, I read as greed. Reality has to take the place of unacted hope. The Global Summit is the beginning to stop the end. Thank you. Carl. Hello. Um, I'm just going to say a few words. My name is uh, Carl Fudge, and first I'd like to thank Forth You for making this wonderful space available um, for artists to install their art. Um, and particularly to Loretta Howard for her thoughtful art installations over the last three years. Uh, as mentioned, my work from Dura's Resurrection is on view in the chapel. The three works are from a series of screen printed paintings all based on the same image, which is Albrecht Dura's Resurrection. For those of you who are not familiar with Dura, he was a German 15th century artist renowned for his mastery of both painting and graphic mediums and his extraordinary use of line in print. As an artist who works a lot with printmaking, 
I've always been in awe of Dürer's work and his phenomenal technique. Part of the objective with these paintings is to bring the historical image in line with contemporary aesthetics and thought, as our daily lives are increasingly impacted by technology. What is interesting to me in placing these paintings <coughs> in the chapel, the paintings have their roots in the 15th century, um, back into this historical context, as this makes for quite a heady compression of time. I encourage you to read the description on the board outside the chapel, written by Loretta, which gives you some reflections on the idea of the resurrection. Thank you. Unitarian Universalists draw from six sources. And the second source talks about the words and deeds of prophetic people who warn us against evil and who encourage us to work to dismantle systems of oppression and injustice. Today, I wanna to talk about what it means to be a prophet and who does qualify to be a prophet nowadays. So back in ancient times in the Hebrew Bible, a prophet is someone who had a special relationship with the divine. So one could possibly say that a prophet and God are this close. Therefore, giving the prophet a vision of what's to come, and usually that means that if a certain country, like Israel, for example, doesn't get its act together, then destruction is on the way. And there are other prophets throughout history. We call them oracles, and these days we may call them fortune tellers although they dwell on the more personal side of the prophecy part of the equation more than a bigger picture of what's to come. Now, getting back to prophets, they weren't usually the most popular folks around. Because if you could imagine someone preaching this whole message of repent, repent, the end is at hand, that kind of gets off-putting after a while, doesn't it? And it doesn't really make you the life of the party. Whenever you come up with all these doom and gloom scenarios of what's to come. Now, I don't know what Robert Rauschenberg's personality was like, uh, whether he was a very friendly kind of guy or whatnot, but I do know that he was, um, race in a fundamentalist Christian family, like his parents were fundamentalists, right? And that he was an openly gay man and that he lived in both Florida and New York. All those traits I happen to share with him. So that must mean that he's a cool guy if projection were to be true, right? So maybe it wasn't an acerbic or um, you know, a, a kind of personality of a prophet that would um, necessarily get him in trouble, but maybe he was a prophet because keep in mind that this artwork was done 30 years ago. And already back then, he was talking about climate change and the impacts of it. 
again, way before Al Gore came up with an inconvenient truth, right? And way before someone like Greta Thunberg started talking about the impacts of climate change if we don't act quickly. So maybe these were indeed prophetic words. Last turn, your turn. And it makes me think, if he thought about this 30 years ago, what have we done ever since? And I must admit that this way of looking into the future really got to me with this image of the baby on a stroller. Because just a couple of years ago, actually my niece was born during the pandemic. So on April of 2020 was when she was born. And so even just a couple of years ago when I was living with them, I used to roll them around on a stroller. And it made me think, what kind of world are we leave, leaving my niece? And also my nephew, who's only a year and a half older than her, right? What is the impact? And again, Robert being Native American must have thought about the seven generations down the road of what kind of world is our children gonna inherit as the meditation song pointed out earlier, right? Last turn, 30 years from when he created this, the only source of protection for that toddler or baby is an umbrella. And yet, is an umbrella enough to mitigate the impact of the burning trees that are represented in red and orange here? It's kind of depressing if you think about it, if you think about the fact that we may be too late, that we might have missed that turn, that at this point, the only thing we could do is to mitigate the impact of climate change. And on the other hand, there could be this thing called resurrection, maybe out of the ashes and maybe out of the death and destruction could come new life. Now, I know the word resurrection is pretty loaded, especially for some of us who grew up in, again, a more fundamentalist background or an oppressive religious tradition where that word has been used to just describe one event in history that was taken literally to mean a physical resurrection from death back into life. I want to be clear that that's not the kind of resurrection I'm talking about, because if you want to read or find out or um, listen to more stories about that, there's a bunch of zombie movies out there where the death come back, to, the, the dead come back to life, right? So. That's not really my definition of resurrection at this point. And I think it's closer to what Carl was talking about earlier in terms of what if we were to view resurrection as a metaphor. And this is what I love about being a Unitarian Universalist because we get to make it up as we go along. If we don't like a definition, let's come up with our own, right? And indeed, this is what I love about Carl's resurrection, so to speak, of an artwork from the 15th century, 
is that it causes us to reimagine what resurrection might look like. By the way, Carl, I must say that whenever I look at your piece, I'm reminded of any of you remember the 1990s where there was this form of artwork called Magic Eye? Remember those? Like they seem like they're just a bunch of shapes and patterns and you really can't tell what it is until you cross your eyes and you distance yourself from the piece itself far enough and you kind of have a different focus on it, that's when you begin picking up on the 3D piece that's behind that confusing or nonsensical or abstract piece of art, right? So it reminds me of that. And remember the matrix where they had the reigning code, right? The bits of zeros and ones, um, true or false, you know, the computer codes. So it reminds me of a mix between those two in terms of whenever you look at it, you get a different image each time. And this is in fact one of the staff members shared with me is that whenever she looks at this piece of work in the chapel, she gets a different image each time. And so what if that were to be how we redefine resurrection? Is that, is there a way to take a look at the same situation like climate change, for example, from a different angle? And can we cross our eyes a little bit to see what's really there? And I love the definition that, um, or not the definition, but the opening words earlier today that Melissa read for us. Even in the darkest days, the moon and the sun make their ancient reliable journeys. Birds sing. Some green thing insists on growing in a ravaged land. Our own human life force refuses to give up. What if that were to be the definition of resurrection? Life refuses to give up. And that life is stronger than death. I believe that resurrection actually happens all the time. It's a matter, however, of whether we actually notice it taking place or not. Nature itself resurrects itself at least four times a year. Finally, I get to, I was sharing during the um, discussion earlier, finally, for the first time in my life, I get to live in a place where there are actually seasons, unlike living in Hawaii or LA or the Philippines where there are just two seasons for all intents and purposes, um, the wet season and the dry season or the summertime and the winter time, right, in quotes. But here you could actually tell the seasons changing and the death that takes place during the winter that is brought back to life during the springtime. So that for me is a form of resurrection. Now, again, the question, the million dollar question is, is there going to be a resurrection after the ravaging impacts of climate change that we've already noticed? I'm not even gonna sit here or stand here and debate whether climate change is real or not. 
Again, one of our sources talks about humanist teachings, which calls us to reason and science. And no scientist worth anything would even debate that climate change is taking place. And we ourselves could notice the impact of it, right? With the weather patterns and the burning trees and forests in Canada that has resulted in ashes and smoke here in New York. So I'm not even gonna go there, but I just wanna think for a little bit, even if climate change were irreversible, what is our task and what is our responsibility in the midst of it, all of this? Is it just to throw up our hands and give up and say, oh, well, who cares? I'm just gonna eat, drink, and be merry at this point because it's all gonna go to hell anyway, right? Or am I gonna continue to work towards making the world a better place no matter how, um, how, no matter how far gone it is, for example, or no matter what that may look like? And what would that look like? What would that resurrection of the commitment look like? Well, it may be surprising to you, but it makes me want to put on a green MAGA hat. And MAGA would stand for Make America Green Again, right? That somehow we work with institutions that would highlight that upper left green aspect of how we nurture and protect our environment. And what that means is to continue to support things like the Paris Climate Agreement and other UN resolutions and the green, the new green, the, the green new deal, right? And other efforts to pass legislation to support it. And again, the latter part of this talks about how it is our turn to do something about it. So in my mind, this picture of Atlas holding up the world implies that there is a solitary, strong figure to solve all our problems. Again, as Unitarian Universalists, we don't have one Messiah or one Savior to save the world. It's not just up to Al Gore, it's not just up to Greta Thunberg to save the environment. The world is burning. As Julia pointed out earlier, um, you know, Greta Thunberg says that our house is on fire. It is up to every single one of us to pick up a bucket. We can't just leave it to the firefighters. We can't just leave it to all these politicians or inspirational children out there that give wonderful speeches to save our planet. It's all hands on deck. And thankfully, in this congregation, this is a great plug for our environmental justice team that we have a team in place to help us figure out how we could do this together. And I'm not denying the fact that we do still need to instill and pass legislation that would indeed mitigate the impacts of climate change. So you, again, using that burning house metaphor, we also need to pass new building codes to make sure that there are sprinklers installed and that 
buildings are up to code, right? So it, in other words, it's both and. In order for resurrection to happen, we need to do all these things to make sure that life triumphs over death, that we refuse to give up, even in the midst of uncertainty and what may happen in the future. So I'd like to end this with an altar call, a good old-fashioned altar call, a come to the chalice moment, right? And to do so, I'd like you to repeat after me the pledge that Rauschenberg came up with, which is, I want to make sure I get all the words right here. I pledge to make the earth a secure and hospitable home for present and future generations. Let's say that one more time with gusto and with, you know, conviction this time, right? I pledge to make the earth a secure and hospitable home for present and future generations. Can I get an amen? Amen, maybe so. Hi, and welcome to Getting the Message, where we dive a little bit deeper into our service themes for the day. I'm so excited to sit down with our very own. Wait, is this your first time? It is my it's first, your first time, time doing this with you. The message. Our so very exciting. own first time with our new interim, and well, not so new anymore. <laughs> no. Um, our interim Been minister. Been here a month and a half. Our veteran interim minister, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Reverend Dr. John Fruquan. Dramatic, dramatic effects. Yep. Um, I'll pay for some dramatic effects to add in there. <laughs> um, it's in the post-production, right? Yes. Yeah, we'll see what I can find in post-production. Um, I was really fascinated by the direction that you went with for today's uh, message with it being Art Sunday. You know, I feel like there can be, you know, it, it could have been an opportunity for a very like, let's just talk about these pieces and like, mm -hmm. that's it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was really fascinated and very moved by the choices that you, that you made. It was, it was very, thank um, you. Uh, it was very, um, it was an interesting choice. What, what was your inspiration for going the direction you did today? That's a good question. So I actually majored in film studies for my undergraduate degree. And taking that, I learned about art from many different perspectives including art history, um, specifically focusing on Greco-Roman art and also theater. And I've always wondered if there was a way to tie in spirituality to art. As we know, throughout history, there's been attempts to depict the stories in art forms. Stained glass windows, our very own congregation has them, right? And the mosaic, if it's not covered with a curtain, um, depicts um, uh, the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Right. And all throughout Europe, I love visiting these old churches because they have these grandiose artwork that has been commissioned um, during the Renaissance and um, other periods of um, church history. Right. And so it's a great way to um, inspire people. And so I mm. thought it might be 
a good tie-in to a somewhat of a heavy subject, which is about climate change and climate disaster and catastrophe and what we can do about it. You know, that actually has me wondering. So, you know, you're talking about these old churches in, in Europe. And so a lot of the Catholic churches, very ornate, very beautiful. Um, and then maybe even the Episcopals too. But then, uh, you know, the tradition that we come out of, the the more like reformed side, the more like Protestant side, it was very much like, no, uh, sorry, we don't do art in the church. Like art is going to not glorify um, God. And we were, you know, that, that's the tradition that Unitarian Universalism comes out of on that side was the very logical religion, the very... Indeed. Um, well, Puritans, right. that's who came to this country on the Mayflower, right? And that does trace back to... Um, the oldest Unitarian Universalist congregation in America, which was founded in 1620 um, at the the Plymouth Parish right. um, uh, Unitarian Church, which goes back to this whole idea, actually, that whenever you have statues or graven images, if you will, that that sinks into idolatry. And so our Puritan forebearers thought that we should get rid of any kind of artwork, if you will, because that will shift the focus away mm. from God into either human beings or other inanimate objects, if you will. Right. But, you know, we're reclaiming that. Yeah. I think it's not just about art, even, that has seeped its way into worship and mm. our lack of rituals. Right. Like lighting the chalice, for example, hasn't um, been a part of our tradition until the consolidation in the 1960s, right? And so even that is a fairly recent thing. So it's nice to be able to reintegrate right. art into our sacred space. And also um, these days, since we do cover up that mosaic, um, we have a greater flexibility in terms of what kind of artwork we feature. Right. Right. No, and that, well, A, I'm kind of curious if um, historically universalist churches have a different sort of art feel to them than historically <laughs> Unitarians. But maybe that's not our <laughs> question for the moment because that is a rabbit trail. This one we can pursue in the future. Um, Indeed. Uh, and, but, you know, so there is a part of me that wonders about that. Uh, but, you know, you were talking about how um, we we kind of dropped ritual. And one of the things that I noticed when I spent some time in the Catholic church mm -hmm. was that the sermons were always shorter mm -hmm. um, because that was not the important part of being there. The ritual was the important part of being there. Right. And I've always just found right. that like fascinating to think about, about like, that, you know, the, the difference between um, the word being brought, the sermon and mm -hmm. uh, the the rituals, the, it's a, ve a very different um a very different importance placed on, on the different aspects. Indeed, that's why it's called a mass, right? Yeah. Or for Episcopalians, it's a Eucharist because right. the emphasis is on communion um, and other rituals. And Catholics know exactly when to sit down and when to stand up and how to genuflex and all that. And for um, as Unitarian, <laughs> there you go. I never learned how to do it. I was never a Catholic. Um, but for us Unitarian Universalists, it's the worship of the written word in in you know in terms of the sermon 
um, used to be an hour, actually, back during Jonathan Edwards' time. There's still and some reform churches that lean towards that long. I've been to them. And it's, you know, compared to Catholic homilies, which are like five to 10 minutes. And for ministers, there's a lot more pressure to, you know, preach a very intellectually stimulating right. sermons. It has so to be speak. meaningful. It has and, to be. Right, right. And it has to touch all the points. Right. And quote from different books and all of that. But, you know, there is kind of a movement these days to integrate the emotions and the spiritual element um, and inspiration more into the right. liturgy rather than um, just the usual 15 to 20 minute didactic kind of sermon. Right. I almost had a minor in my undergrad in worship and uh, ah. like it was it was the fact that I did not want to join the choir and did not have any musical instruments that I played that really stopped me. Um, but I always I didn't loved... know they had worship as a minor yeah. in your college. Yeah, back in back in my day, you know, because <laughs> um, uh, it was a Reformed Bible College and then it became Kuiper College. But they had a gotcha. they had a, a at the very least a worship minor. I don't know if it was a worship um, whole worship degree. Maybe they had one, but. Um, I, I took a bunch of classes because I was just fascinated by like the liturgy, by the planning of worship. And, you know, even still like nowadays, like I always just try and think of like the whole picture of the, like what the, when choosing the readings, like, you know, I don't do that oh, yeah. things too nonchalantly. Yeah. Cause I'm like, let's think about like, well, what are these pieces? What does this mean? Well, that was my doctorate, right? <laughs> Is uh, worship was the main driver of it. Right. And, um, you know, it comes from a process theology perspective. Mm. And the name of the course itself is Worship Arts, meaning that arts is integrated into the worship experience. And in a way, there is sort of a performance aspect to the entire right. worship experience, especially those of us on the dais, right? right. And um, and yet, you know, the emphasis shouldn't be on us and right. um, individuals that are up there on the not, not on the worship leaders, but on the greater, bigger mystery that right. we're a part of, so to speak. Um, and what was interesting was when I was doing research for my dissertation topic, interestingly enough, there wasn't a lot of books at that time anyway on mm -hmm. process theology and worship. Mm -hmm. So it was still very much an academic emphasis and on the theological right. uh, aspect of it rather than worship, I guess, would be considered more a um, a light, a lighter discipline, perhaps. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. So even in the academic world, there's right. still this bias against art and worship. Right. No, I would, I would agree there. Um, I, you know, will resist will, will, another, another rabbit trail, but potential future sermon topic is, you know, will there someday be a process theology sermon? <laughs> um, as, as a theology Every nerd, Sunday I know, is I, a process theology yeah. sermon. I have to, of course, weave the theology <laughs> that resonates with me the most. Um, it is a fascinating topic for those who are interested in diving into theology, Indeed. Ner nerdery. Indeed. <laughs> and Unitarian Universalism has been um, heavily impacted right. by process theology, to say the right. least. So in our specific setting, obviously we choose kind of a little bit more, I almost dare say like ju justice-y, thing, mm -hmm. things that, you know, go along with the things that are important to our mission. Like we're not mm -hmm. just uh, 
choosing an art piece because it's pretty. Right. Um, we, we choose it because right. it's something that is meaningful and that um, has a has a connection to the kind of work that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about um, you talk about climate and we already talked mm -hmm. about that a little bit. Do you think that there is a role that art has to play in like facing the climate crisis? Indeed, um, Rauschenberg thought that art could be used as a catalyst for change and as a catalyst for inspiration. And so that's why um, the title is what it was, which is Last Turn, Your Turn, mm -hmm. meaning putting the emphasis back on each of us to do our part to help protect and um, and to protect the environment right. and to make sure that we mitigate the impacts of climate change. Right. No, I think that um, when when I was coming up with the questions, one of the things that came to mind as I wrote out that question was thinking about how art is to me something that is that makes makes existence as it currently is worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. You know, that um it's something that can inspire us, that it's not something we want to lose is our you know, and that, um, in fact, you know, uh, we need some of a more embodied approach to to counter um, the climate crisis, that we need to, like, be aware of our connection to the world around us, our, our connection to the beauty of the world, and I think that art can be a way to, to connect to that. So that was one of the things that... Absolutely. And he, again, in my mind, by putting in the green bits of the piece, mm. um, does draw inspiration from nature as well and right. to let us know that that is something that's worth preserving, right. Right. right? Definitely. To close this out, a more personal note, a little bit less about the message. Um, what is your personal relationship with art? Like, obviously you talk about your um, your previous, your previous life, your past <laughs> life um, in, in the film world. Um, but, mm -hmm. you know, on the day-to-day in -day, your overall life, like what, what role does art play? I still enjoy watching movies and I um and there's lots of streaming options these days. <laughs> um, you know, so I am not um averse to binge watching um shows on a certain we're not gonna name names, right? <laughs> a streaming channels out there, but I'm sure you all have your favorites as well. Um, and especially when I was sick with COVID a couple of weeks ago, right. I, um, I, you know, I, I was able to catch up, so to speak, because, you know, life gets busy and, and all of that. Um, and living here in New York, I love how accessible the theater is. And I definitely want to support the arts that way. Right. And, um, um, and, 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 so I guess that's my way of keeping my gay card is to make sure that I watch as many musicals as possible. Um, and I do love museums as well, which feature great art. And again, um, my library card apparently entitles me to either discounted or free admission to uh, museums around New York. So I'm looking forward to exploring more of the artwork that's available here. Well, thank you for a great conversation, getting to reflect a little bit further. And I'm looking forward to doing more of these uh, in the coming weeks. Sounds great. Thank you, Amber.
And thank you to all of our listeners.